It has already been a long morning, and John tells us Jesus was sent for execution about noon. There are five to six hours left of Thursday. Welcome to Anakinosis, where we renew our minds towards biblical worldview in the scriptures. This is a show for anyone looking to build or repair their biblical worldview. Whether you're 100% comfortable in the current Christian culture, or you feel like an outsider looking in, everyone is welcome. My name is Jeremy Agin. I'm just a guy with a Bible literacy background who has ASD and who thinks a lot about how to think. Today, Jesus is crucified. It's still Thursday. Thursday. Now, in the first century, the Jews blocked daylight into three blocks of time as nobody had watches. Third hour was the time about 9 a.m. going to before 12 p.m. The sixth hour was after 12 and before 3 p.m. And then the ninth hour was after 3 p.m. and then before sundown. John says that Jesus was sent for crucifixion about the sixth hour or about noon. This means before noon. Some would call this the third hour. In fact, Mark does so in Mark 15, 25. So there's not a contradiction here, as many point out, any more than one person saying it is not yet noon and another saying it's after nine when talking about 10 or 11 o'clock. That day, at sunset, the Passover will begin. Pilate's declaration of Jesus as Israel's king has highly upset the mob. Away with him, away with him, crucify him, they have cried out. They banter back and forth about Jesus' royalty, and the crowd claims allegiance to Caesar. Pilate will wash his hands of their judgment and free Barabbas, the murderer, And have Jesus executed in his place. Think about that. Jesus dying in the place of a sinner. Matthew 27, 23. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. So Pilate washes his hands of the whole thing, and I don't even know if he's aware of the Torah being a Roman ruler, but the Torah law had provisions for this in Deuteronomy 21, 6-9. You could wash your hands and be absolved from the guiltiness. But after he's washed, he declares that the Jews are responsible for Jesus' blood, and they readily accept, saying, let his blood be on us and our children. What a curse. And we have mentioned it many times now, but between 66 to 70 AD, many Jewish people at this time and their children will be killed. The Romans destroy the temple and thousands of Jewish families. Jesus' blood was on the heads of that generation. Pilate keeps his word and releases Barabbas back to the people and hands Jesus over to be crucified. Now, this is a hard study for many reasons. 
First of all, it's hard to watch good people go through bad things. And second, we can't help but feel like it's our fault. And third, we have a hard time believing that anyone could love us this deeply. Why did he have to die again? If you ask a bunch of people, you'll get a bunch of answers. And we talked about this in the Atonement episode. Is it right to say Jesus died for us? I mean, I've been saying it. It's long been burned in my brain as part of my worldview. And yes, it's biblical. Bible authors phrased it like this. But what does it mean? Is he a substitute? And we were due this penalty? Or did he do it for us all? Like, for our good? Paul will later write that Jesus died for our sins. And this makes sense, right? Remember Eden and the choice? We all die because we rejected God and his offer of life. We are all guilty of this, but Jesus is not. He has passed the test. God laid crucifixion on the table as the path to true life, and Jesus trusted it rather than claiming a different path as a better life for him. Between Eden and the cross, God selected a people group to be his covenant people that he would raise Jesus out of. To bring them grace and mercy, he established the tabernacle and later the temple for them. And everything about the temple was designed to remind the people of Eden. And part of that was its lack of death. Nobody touching or impacted by death could enter. Laws of cleanliness and all of those things surrounding it. The sacrificial system was put in place to show how people could re-enter Eden. A spotless, blameless animal life poured out on an altar as a representative of the imperfect humans who cannot return to Eden. The priest carried then the animal's blood into the holy place as if it covers the human priest from dying themselves. The sacrifice was for the people. Enter Jesus. By joining us outside of Eden, Jesus will now die with us. But if he passes the test and is spotless and blameless before God, he can represent us in his death. And by his blood covering us, we can re-enter Eden. Or Eden can now invade into our space as well. Keep all of that in mind as we witness his death. John 19, starting in verse 16. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and him, two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests and the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Now I mentioned before, but I believe Pilate writes what he believes. He had asked Jesus, what is truth? But yet Pilate writes the truth in three languages for the Jewish nation gathered for Passover to see. 
Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. It was typical for criminals to carry their own crossbeam on their shoulders with arms outstretched and hands tied to it. Typical crossbeams are believed to weigh about 100 pounds and they would carry it to the place of execution where it would be fastened to the upright beam forming a cross. Jesus, in his abused condition, cannot physically achieve this task from the city walls to the place of the skull, outside of the walls. Here, Luke introduces us to a man named Simon, though not Simon Peter or Simon the Zealot. Luke 23:26. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. So this Simon is a visitor to Jerusalem for the Passover, and there are hundreds of Jews from all over the world here at this season, all having to bear witness to this crucifixion of the Messiah. Simon is from Cyrene, which is a coastal city in North Africa. At this time, it's a home to a large Jewish colony. So he is Jewish, or he is a Jewish convert who has traveled a long way to get to Jerusalem just in time for the holiday. Mark tells us he had with him two sons, Alexander and Rufus. Apparently, Mark's readers would know who Rufus is. Mark wrote his gospel to the Romans, and Rufus might have grown up to be the Rufus mentioned as a friend of Paul in his letter to the Romans. Many movies have depicted Simon the Cyrene as a believer in the Lord, and you can take that or leave it. All we know for sure Because of the scourging, Jesus is too weak to carry his own cross from Jerusalem to Golgotha, so this man is forced to do it. I imagine he had just been one of the people following Jesus out of curiosity, as there are many. Luke 23, 27, And there followed with him a great multitude of people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen? when it is dry. As he is led to die, Jesus prophesies to the people what's to come next, quoting loosely from Hosea 10, judgment would befall Jerusalem for the crime that they are committing against him. And he is doing it for them, but they are still unjustly doing this to him. They are killing the son of the master just like he said would happen in his parables. Luke 23, 32. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. The man in the middle was likely to be Barabbas, but instead it's the living God of the universe. This is cosmically bad. When you picture this, do you 
see a lowercase t cross, the Romans crucified people on capital T's. It's believed that the lowercase t cross was adopted by the early church to represent the cross of Christ because of the sign above his head that would make his cross particularly lowercase. And as he's hanging there, he's not looking down in judgment or in anger, but with a heart of forgiveness. You who blindfolded me and hit me, I'm forgiving that right now. And you over there who drove the nails through my wrists, I'm forgiving you right now. And over there, you who are gambling for my clothes, I forgive you. Pilate, in your palace, you turn me over to this crowd, I'm forgiving you. Moses, you failed in the wilderness, I'm forgiving you. David, king from long ago, you committed adultery and murder and so many other sins, I'm forgiving you. To our more modern leaders as well, Hitler, Mussolini, Mao, the United States presidents, Putin, and not just leaders, regular Joes. From the petty thief on the street to the wealthy business owner that perpetuates an economy class system that benefits only the elite. Jesus is forgiving us all. Now look at verse 33 again. This is the verse where they crucified Jesus, and we have to understand what that means in full. For Jesus to make it through the flogging means he's a man of tremendous stature. Really, an awesome physical specimen. Maybe from working hard labor as a mason um, has helped Jesus become physically fit. We know he eats well. He eats lots of fish. He has strong fasting regimens. We know he walks all the time. He's a man of great health and of great strength, and that's likely how he would make it through the floggings, despite battling that rare hemodrosis condition in the garden. He is mentally anguished, and now, after the flogging, he is physically anguished and needs help carrying his 100-pound crossbeam to Golgotha and to endure one of the most cruel and inhuman executions invented by man. The following is an excerpt from The Science of the Crucifixion by Colleen Schreier, PhD. Crucifixion was invented by the Persians between 300 and 400 BC. It is quite possibly the most painful death ever invented by humankind. The English language derives the word excruciating from crucifixion, acknowledging it as a form of a slow, painful suffering. Its punishment was reserved for slaves, foreigners, revolutionaries, and the vilest of criminals. Victims were nailed to a cross. However, Jesus' cross is probably not the Latin cross, but rather a Tau cross, capital T. The vertical piece, the stipes, remains in the ground permanently. The accused carries only the horizontal piece, the patabulum, up the hill. Atop the patabulum lies a sign, the titulus, indicating that a formal trial occurred for violation of a law. In Jesus' case, the titulus reads, King of the Jews. The accused needed to be nailed to the patabulum while lying down, so Jesus is thrown to the ground, reopening his wounds, grinding in dirt, and causing bleeding. They nail his hands to the patabulum. The Greek meaning of hands includes the wrist. It's more likely that the nails went through Jesus' wrists. 
If the nails were driven into the hand, the weight of the arms would cause the nail to rip through the soft flesh. Therefore, the upper body would not be held to the cross. If placed in the wrist, the bones in the lower portion of the hand support the weight of the arms, and the body remains nailed to the cross. The huge nail, seven to nine inches long, damages or severs the major nerve to the hand, the median nerve, upon impact. This causes continuous, agonizing pain of both of Jesus' arms. Once the victim is secured, the guards lift the patabulum and place it on the stipes already in the ground. As it is lifted, Jesus' full weight pulls down on his nailed wrists and his shoulders and elbows dislocate. In this position, Jesus' arms stretch to a minimum of six inches longer than their original length. It is highly likely that Jesus' feet were nailed through the tops as often pictured. In this position, with the knees flexed at approximately 90 degrees, the weight of the body pushes down on the nails and the ankles support the weight. The nails would not rip through the soft tissue as would have occurred with the hands. Again, the nail would cause severe nerve damage as it severs the dorsal pedal artery of the foot and causing acute pain. Normally, to breathe in, the diaphragm, the large muscle that separates the chest cavity from the abdominal cavity, must move down. This enlarges the chest cavity and air automatically moves into the lungs. Inhalation. To exhale, the diaphragm rises up, which compresses the air in the lungs and forces out the air. Exhalation. As Jesus hangs on the cross, the weight of his body pulls down on the diaphragm and the air moves into his lungs and remains there. Jesus must push up on his nailed feet, causing more pain to exhale. In order to speak, air must pass over the vocal cords during exhalation. The gospel notes that Jesus spoke seven times from the cross. It's amazing that despite his pain, he pushes up to say, forgive them. The difficulty surrounding exhalation leads to a slow form of suffocation. Carbon dioxide builds up in the blood, resulting in a high level of carbonic acid in the blood. The body responds instinctively, triggering the desire to breathe. At the same time, the heart beats faster to circulate available oxygen. The decreased oxygen, due to the difficulty in exhaling, causes damage to the tissues and the capillaries begin leaking watery fluid from the blood into the tissues. This results in a buildup of fluid around the heart, pericardial effusion, and his lungs, pleural effusion. The collapsing lungs, failing heart, dehydration, and the inability to get sufficient oxygen to the tissues essentially suffocate the victim. The increased oxygen also damages the heart itself, myocardial infarction, which leads to cardiac arrest. In severe cases of cardiac stress, the heart can even burst, a process known as cardiac rupture. Jesus most likely died of a heart attack. End quote. This is what Jesus battles on the cross, struggling to inhale and exhale. What else is going on at the cross during the first three hours of the crucifixion? Mark tells us they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, a special medicinal concoction to numb the body. Matthew tells us he tasted it, and when he realized what it was, he passes. He is owning this. 
Back to John's account, John 19, 23. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. Now, this gambling for garments isn't just about Jesus. This is a cruel activity the Romans do to every condemned person. Everyone's clothing are handmade at this time and thus more expensive and more valuable. And the condemned person isn't going to be wearing them anymore. And so the soldiers get them as part of their pay. For real. They strip the person naked long before the clothes are ruined by blood and they divide them amongst themselves like a group of waiters and waitresses with a tip jar. The seamless undergarment, which provokes the casting lots, is worth mentioning because it's the seamless tunic worn by the high priest. Jesus is the final priest. And the gambling for his garments was prophesied in Psalm 22, something that will be important in a moment. But now Jesus hangs naked on the cross, part of the shame which he bore for our sins. The first Adam was naked, yet he knew no sin. And then he brought sin into the world and realized he was naked and needed covering. Jesus, the second Adam, goes back to the place of the fall, being naked and removes the problem of sin and offers grace. Jesus hangs there in our place. His flesh, shredded to the bone, carrying the weight of the world's sin on his shoulders, unable to breathe. And now, people have gathered beneath him to taunt and play games. Matthew twenty-seven thirty-nine, And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and the elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He can't save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from his cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Remember, this is an accusation from the Jewish courts that Jesus claims to rebuild the temple in three days. Well, this is the end of daylight of the Jewish Thursday. By Sunday morning, three days later, they'll possibly understand what he means. What temple Jesus rebuilds. It's his own life. So the people are mocking him. The religious folks are mocking him. The dying thieves are mocking him. How awful and how alone. Almost alone. God stands with him. Now, as far as the priest taunts go, I've played this in my mind over and over. The most natural, justified thing Jesus could have done in response to these taunts is bust himself off the cross with supernatural strength restore his flesh with the wave of the hand, clothe himself in a cloud of glory, 
and have the sword of his mouth destroy all mankind right then and there. But Jesus is too busy for old justice. He is offering grace. Jesus is too busy forgiving. He's too busy forgiving. Now, we'll meet these taunting robbers a bit more intimately. Matthew says they both jeer at Jesus, and Luke describes one jeering at him. Likely, they both were doing so at first until one sees Jesus' countenance and changes his mind. Luke 23, 39, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus gives this criminal what we all want. Entrance into Jesus' paradise, that is Eden. Here we have clear criteria. Our earthly works for Jesus do not count. This man can't possibly do any Christian or moral thing. He can do nothing to prove his allegiance. He won't have any of the opportunities that we have been given. All he has is Jesus. And in the end, that is all that any of us have. Jesus promises him. Imagine being minutes away from paradise. There's some theology about afterlife that can be pulled here, but we're not going to go there today. One last thing happens in the first three hours of the crucifixion, and that is a visit from his earthly mother. John 19, 25. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. Early church history supports that John the Apostle does just this for Jesus. After the Great Commission and Jesus' ascension, after the day of Pentecost and all of that, all the disciples eventually take off spreading the news of the resurrected Jesus to the known world. But John stays put, taking care of Mary, until one year, towards the middle of the first century, John moves her with him to Ephesus, where he helps care for a church, possibly one planted by Paul. The question is, why John? If Jesus had brothers, why weren't they taking care of her? And I have a theory, if you're interested. If not, fast forward about 10 seconds. Joseph, the earthly father of Jesus, could have been an older gentleman, a widower, in fact, who had many sons and daughters from a previous marriage. He then was found worthy by some manner to be engaged to the young virgin Mary, who some historical texts place as a temple maiden, like a female Samuel. In theory, Mary marries this older man and she mothers his many children and her only son, Jesus, leaving Jesus as the only person to rightly take care of his mother in old age and nobody else. And this also satisfies Joseph's mysterious disappearance by the time of Jesus' adulthood. Joseph is likely dead. 
and Jesus' brothers would not be in line to take care of Mary with her being a stepmom only? This theory could also be bonkers. It doesn't matter what's going on. Jesus is on the cross, bearing our sins, forgiving our sins, and yet he sees his mom and makes sure she's taken care of for the rest of her life. That is the type of person that he was, that he is. Jesus takes care of sin on the cross, but he also takes care of pain, suffering, grief, and depression. His resurrection launches God's will that all things be made new. And just as sin is still in the world, so is pain. But the resurrection makes way for them to end. The king is coronated. The kingdom is coming. He endures all that pain to remove all of yours. This is something we will experience in full when he returns. In Revelation, John writes, Death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Behold, I am making all things new. I'm reminded of the Apostle Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Matthew doesn't give us a starting time on the crucifixion, but Mark does. Mark tells us it began at the third hour between 9 and 12. Now Matthew tells us that from the sixth hour, which is noon, until the ninth hour, which is about three, darkness comes over the land. It is in this hour of darkness that Jesus becomes a sin offering for the world. Matthew 27, 45. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. This verse lasts three hours or so from noon to three. Jesus hangs on the cross by seven to nine inch Roman nails. He suffocates. He suffers heart complications. He's never felt so much physical pain before. He's mocked. He's shamed. He's miserable. And this goes on after 9 a.m. to noon while he forgives them. They gamble for his clothes. He makes sure his mom's taken care of. He promises a robber next to him they'll be together in Eden today. And then at noon, the sky turns dark over all the land. This could be just the land around Jerusalem. It could be the entire earth. If we are correct in the year and day of Jesus' crucifixion, there were two sky darkening events in Jerusalem that day. First was a major dust storm that came in and blotted out the sun. And this this came in in the afternoon. And that was followed that evening with a partial lunar eclipse, creating an eerie and dark blood moon. You know, this early sundown catches everyone off guard, for all the Passover sacrifices are due at sundown. If it's a race, Jesus wins. It's almost as if God makes sure that Jesus is alone. The sacrifice. As the sky goes dark at midday, Jesus hangs there and is suffering for three more hours, from noon to three. But is he alone? That's the end of Thursday. Because the surprise darkness rolls the clock into Friday. What the church has long coined, Good Friday.
As we continue to build our biblical worldview, we want to think about what in our minds needs renewed. Jesus forgives. That's what he's doing for us. While people are doing it to him, he is doing it for us, forgiving. In what ways can our hearts have the posture to those who have hurt us, but have done far less than what is happening to Jesus? Thank you for listening. Anakinosis is a project for anyone anywhere who's looking to renew their biblical worldview. Next time, it will be Friday.